a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is not a program about me telling you what to think and you sitting there in adoration at my foot, you know, near my easy chair while I sit back, pipe in hand, perfectly brill-creamed hair, dispensing fatherly advice. Nope. I'm a simple truth seeker, probably like you are, and I'm just doing my best to uh, fight my way through the fog and disinformation and figure out which way is up as well as what can I do to improve the world around me. So I'm doing my best to to give you the best information I can find, but I'm not going to guarantee that this is the only way that things should be seen, and therefore you should believe every word I say. It's your mind. You get to make up your mind as to what you will believe, what you will entertain, and what you won't. And anybody who presumes to do it for you, I can say with confidence, is not doing so in your best interest. So thanks for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. We have some great sponsors who make this program possible. In fact, if you find value in what I do, if you tune into this program because you just want to hear what's what's interesting, what's happening, what uh, what will help me better understand the world, if you find value, please let my sponsors know. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com. Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, and GovernYourIncome.com. So I wanted to start with some good news today. Um, I'm going to put that in air quotes, good news. You know how I can be certain that there is no such thing as mass formation psychosis taking place or taking hold in a large segment of the population? You know how I know there's no such thing? Because the major propaganda organs of our time, including big tech, Mass media and all their political allies have unanimously concluded no such thing exists. No. They say there is no evidence of pandemic mass information psychosis. All the fact checkers agree perfectly. And if we can't trust them to tell us the truth, uh, then who can we trust? Okay. Sarcasm off. This is a is a term that I know a lot of people are... F- starting to hear for the first time, you know, mass formation psychosis. And I think Dr. Robert Malone is one of the people who has has actually used this term um, appropriately and in, in its proper context. But here's the question that I have for you. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to <clears throat> put in your head that, oh, yeah, everybody's crazy except you and me. We're the only ones who, are, who aren't crazy, right? Right, George? Yeah, you're my friend, huh, George? You know, uh, No, I want you to consider whether it is possible for a majority of people to become so uh, pliable or malleable because of fear that they might cling to something that is not connected to reality. And there are some historical examples of this. In fact, um, I want to play for you just a very brief excerpt. This is from the Academy of Ideas. The manufacturing of a mass psychosis. Can sanity return to an insane world? This is powerful stuff. And it's a video that's linked in today's show notes. Check this out. The masses have never thirsted after truth. They turn aside from evidence that is not to their taste. 
preferring to deify error if error seduced them. Whoever can supply them with illusions is easily their master. Whoever attempts to destroy their illusions is always their victim. Diseases of the body can spread through a population and reach epidemic proportions, but so too can diseases of the mind. And of these epidemics of the latter variety, the mass psychosis is the most dangerous. During a mass psychosis, madness becomes the norm in a society, and delusionary beliefs spread like a contagion. But as delusions can take many forms, and as madness can manifest in countless ways, the specific manner in which a mass psychosis unfolds will differ based on the historical and cultural context of the infected society. In the past, mass psychoses have led to witch hunts, genocides, and even dancing manias. But in the modern era, it is the mass psychosis of totalitarianism that is the greatest threat. Totalitarianism, writes Arthur Verslewis, is the modern phenomenon of total centralized state power, coupled with the obliteration of individual human rights. In the totalized state, there are those in power, and there are the objectified masses, the victims. Okay, I'm going to stop it here, but uh, you get the idea. This is linked in the show notes, but it's about 16 and a half minutes long. Look, the Academy of Ideas, I think, does a really good job of of showing um, historical context and and very non um, agendized as in nonpartisan information that's hard to find these days. But uh, this is one of the reasons why I've I've become really fond of a lot of their material. And and I just want to just pose the question here um, right now. You know the global elites are very triggered and they are closing ranks. And uh, they, they and their propaganda institutions are now saying, well, there is no such thing as mass formation psychosis. In fact, I, I've got another article I'm going to link to that, uh, you know, this is the definitive big tech, big propaganda media, Reuters, the Associated Press, all joining together to refute the concept of mass formation psychosis. And then they've uh, been pushing their uh, collective narrative into the narrative engineering system. But you notice the examples that, uh, that were mentioned in just the first few moments of this, this video, witch burning, dancing mania, genocide. Okay, no, these are things that have actually happened. I mean, the War of the Worlds is another example of a mass psychosis. People believing things that were not true and being led to some pretty, you know, potentially destructive ends as a result of that disconnect from reality. So... I understand. For some people, he's just off on some conspiracy about mass uh, psychosis. But since everybody agrees that uh, this is, you know, this is the way things ought to be, why obviously the masses are right. Look, I, I don't mean to sound condescending, but the masses don't care about truth. It's like that very first quote. They really don't. You know what they do care about? They care about affirmation. They want people to pat them on the back and tell them they are the best of the best. They want checks with their names on them. They want somebody to assure them that everything is just great, even as the house is burning down around them. That's what the masses want. Now, the people who I would say are not a part of that that mass, that group think, that's what I would typify as uh, the remnant. Or I, I kind of like the term the wrong thinkers because 
you have to be willing to to be labeled a wrong thinker to maintain your grasp on reality today. At least that's that's how it appears to me. So let's see. Here's a headline. This is from the Associated Press and Reuters. There is no evidence of pandemic mass formation psychosis. In fact, uh, here's here's the first line from from their article. Mass formation psychosis in quotation marks because it can't be real is not an academic term recognized in the field of psychology, nor is there evidence of any such phenomenon occurring during the COVID-19 pandemic. Multiple experts in crowd psychology have told writers in the Associated Press. So you see there, citizen, there's nothing to see here. Look away, look away, there's nothing to see. Now, there are plenty of other links here, too, where these headlines are starting to get out there and populate the narrative and quickly rushing to fact check everything and stop people from recognizing what might be the cause of their own psychosis, their own disconnect from reality. And I'm, I'm using layman's terms, but my understanding, that's that's what makes a psychosis a psychosis. Well, this article from the conservative treehouse is in a world where things are no longer shocking. This is a little shocking in a weird and seemingly Orwellian kind of way. Yes, Alice, the same experts in media who are credibly accused of creating and enabling the mass formation psychosis are quick to assure us that no such reality exists. (laughs) And you can trust us because we say so. They've got a number of quotes here. This is from the AP. The concept has no academic credibility, says Stephen Riker, a social psychology professor at the University of St. Andrews in the UK, in an email to the Associated Press. Also, the term does not appear in the American Psychological Association's Dictionary of Psychology. Keep in mind, these are the same folks who voted to remove homosexual, compulsive homosexual behavior from the DSM back in the 1970s. Not because of science, but simply because of a political vote. So I'm just saying, you know... It may seem like, you know, well, you know, we've we've come a long way since the 1970s. I mean, come on, let's let's face it. Gay people are more accepted than ever. And it's it's true. But, you know, there there were mental health experts who were treating people who were engaging in compulsive same sex behavior. And I'm sorry, this this is probably going to seem a little bit indelicate, but a person who has anonymous sex with 12 different strangers in a truck stop restroom. That's not someone who's operating in a healthy mental space. I don't care how you spin it. We'll come back to this story about how there is no mass psychosis, or at least so say the uh, creators of mass psychosis. And there's also a great link in the show notes. Stick around. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So, yeah, apparently there is no such thing as mass formation psychosis. How do we know? Well, because experts got together and said there is no mass psychosis. Especially, there is no mass psychosis involving anything around COVID-19. Oh, wait, what's this? Oh, look, here's an old press release from the Soviet Union. It also says... Nothing is wrong, especially near the power plant. Oh, it's the same same kind of dynamic here. Now, psychosis is a term that refers to conditions that involve some disconnect from reality. And this is from an AP article according to National Institutes of Health estimates. About 3% of people experience some form of psychosis at some time in their lives. 
but they go on to say that the description of, and they always put this in quotes, mass formation psychosis offered by Dr. Robert Malone resembles discredited concepts such as mob mentality and group mind. <laughs> which we also know doesn't exist. According to uh, John Drury, a social psychologist at the University of Sussex in the UK, who studies collective behavior. The ideas suggest that when people form part of a psychological crowd, they lose their identities and their self-control. They become suggestible and primitive instinctive impulses predominate. We're supposed to pretend that doesn't exist. There is no such thing as mob mentality, group mind. I mean, I, you know, this guy's the expert, so I guess we should probably go with what he says. But at the same time, is collectivism real or not? Because if it is, that seems like exactly the kind of thing that collectivists or those who wish to, to control the collective would want people to believe. The article says this notion has been discredited by decades of research on crowd behavior. No respectable psychologist agrees with these ideas now. Well, just the same. I'd like to hear what some of the disrespectable psychologists have to say. You know, just so I can make sure I'm actually getting a full view of what's going on. The article says multiple experts told the Associated Press that while there is evidence that groups can shape or influence one's behaviors and that people can and do believe falsehoods that are put forward by the leader of a group, those concepts do not involve the masses experiencing psychosis or hypnosis. Reuters offers this simultaneous rebuttal. Mass formation psychosis is not an academic term recognized in the field of psychology, nor is there any evidence of any such phenomenon occurring during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is like deja vu. Multiple experts in crowd psychology have told Reuters. There is no evidence to suggest a mass formation psychosis has occurred during the pandemic. Experts, which ones, told Reuters. They don't tell us which ones, but we're assured they're experts. So you better believe them. The term itself is not recognized among academics, and modern research into crowd psychology has shown that crowds do not behave in mindless or non-individualistic ways. <laughs> yeah, so so all those mostly peaceful protests really were just enlightened individuals that were, you know, just doing their best to, to bring justice about. Now, back to the article here from Conservative Treehouse, and I believe there is an author here. Nope. Well, Sundance is the one who, who wrote this. I don't know who that is, but Sundance says, you know, once a collective group creates an alternate reality of itself, in this case, a totalitarian reality based on government needing to create an irrational illusion of fear that becomes part of the accepted national identity, how can anyone call attention to the outcomes without finding themselves in front of the Board of Inquisition who organizes the collective. Put another way, if the pod under your bed malfunctioned, but the pods under all the other beds in the city worked, what happens when you awaken and you realize you are not one of them, but you must engage in the world of them while looking for others like yourself whose pods hopefully malfunctioned? That's the current challenge for anyone trying to communicate on contrary evidence and yet avoid the ire from the collective board of COVID compliance who've successfully brainwashed the audience. There's a nice quote here from Lewis Carroll. This is from <clears throat> the novel Alice Through the Looking Glass. Quote, if I had a world of my own, everything would be nonsense. Nothing would be what it is because everything would be what it isn't. And contrary wise, what is wouldn't be. And what is and what it wouldn't be, it would. You see? So here we are. 
Love the picture, too, that they include of a rabbit looking down a hole. <laughs> kind of feels like where we are right now. One of the things that makes totalitarianism totalitarianism, <clears throat> you'll see this in the video that I share from the Academy of Ideas on the manufacturing of a mass psychosis, is that for totalitarianism to really gain hold, a faith has to be installed in a central leader of some sort. And I'm, I'm going to point to Dr. Fauci as, as comparable to other totalitarian leaders, even though he's really not the one who holds all the, the keys of power. But he has been set up as an almost godlike figure. Infallible, or as close to infallible as you can get. And therefore, people, you know, they wait for his pronouncements. Dr. Fauci, Dr. Fauci, they ask, you know, hat in hand. Will we be able to hug our loved ones in the holidays? You know, and, and, and Fauci, I guess, you know, maybe because he's just kind of going along with it, probably feels good. Wow, these people really revere me. They think I'm some kind of God, you know, holds forth. Well, I think if we all double mask and if we insist on knowing that everybody is vaccinated, this is going to happen. Look, I don't claim any kind of superpowers other than I am a person who is super committed to finding and then living the truth as best I understand it. And one of the truths that I have devoted at least the last 30 years of my life to is understanding the principles and practices of freedom and learning to recognize those things which would undermine them or try to separate us from our personal freedoms. So I'm not, I hope it doesn't come off as a brag or a flex, but I've had some practice in, in noticing when someone is trying to gain control over me or anyone else. And having worked in the media for all this time, you know, I'm, I'm quite aware of, you know, the, the shifting of truth and the shaping of truth, sometimes by bold-faced lies and sometimes just simply by omission, the things we can't talk about. We don't, we don't refer to that. After all, no expert would agree with that. No sane person, no respectable psychologist would ever say that. The problem is so many of the disciplines out there, and this includes medicine and science, have become hopelessly politicized. And when you marry science with power, it can lead to a kind of deification of that science that can take us into some very disastrous directions. We're actually going to be talking more about that in, in the next couple of segments, we'll, we'll talk about getting the courts out of science, why the bastardization of the scientific method is so dangerous. But before we go there, I guess the, the nicest way I can put this, and I'm sorry, this is going to ruin some people's days, but um, we are, you and I are faced with a choice. Will you stand for the truth? Will you continue to speak the truth, even when the pressure against you is immense, And it's painful. It's not like, wow, gee, people disagree or people seem to misunderstand and think I'm, you know, I'm off on some weird lark. I don't think I don't think you quite grasp just how serious it's becoming until you realize there are people who are being trained and conditioned to hate you and to view you as the cause of their angst or their anger or their their suffering. They don't look to the people who are screwing with their minds, they look to the people who are resisting having their minds tampered with. 
And they've been taught to see us as the enemy. Why? Because it destroys the illusion of unanimity. It destroys that that illusion of conformity and that everybody agrees. We're all on, you know, we're all on the same page here. Because clearly we aren't. When we come back from the break, I'm going to share with you a very important uh, message from Gary D. Barnett about why we have to continue to speak the truth. I know it seems pretty self-evident, right? Well, of course. Why would I speak anything but the truth? Well, I don't know. If someone was threatening your livelihood, if someone was threatening your personal well-being, your reputation, that's some pretty powerful incentive to either shut up or chant in unison with the rest of the masses. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, this program is brought to you by great sponsors like lifesavingfood.com. Just going to give you a couple examples of why you ought to click on the link that I provide in my show notes and see if they have something to offer that could help you. You know, whether you're a longtime preparedness person or you're just kind of new to the game, maybe it's time to consider having a few things on hand that could help you through difficult times, whether it be a rainy day, whether it be an unexpected job loss, or, you know, something larger, supply chain issues, I don't know, rampant inflation, a pandemic, world war, whatever it may be. Isn't it nice to know that you have something that you could fall back on? For instance, here is the uh, ReadyWise 7-Day Emergency Dry Bag. This is $110, 60 servings, and it's in a nice waterproof, weatherproof bag. And the beauty of these ReadyWise foods is all you have to do is just add water, hot or cold. You add water and you are good to go. Beautiful stuff. They've got gluten-free buckets. They've got uh, entrees and breakfasts and just uh, such a great variety of great stackable buckets with a 25-year shelf life of the for the food inside. I hope you'll take a look at it. I hope if it's something you can use, you'll do business with lifesavingfood.com. 15% off, no sales tax, free delivery. It's a pretty sweet deal. And they will take care of my, my uh, listeners. You'll be a very valued customer. So please check it out. Let's talk for a moment about the importance of speaking the truth. Because right now, if you want to be a truth speaker these days, you better have a stainless steel backbone. And it's because the masses are conditioned to see you, the wrong thinker, as the cause of their misery. Gary D. Barnett has just a few reasons why we can never stop speaking out. Only the truth will set us free. And he starts with a quotation from William Faulkner. Never be afraid to raise your voice for honesty and truth and compassion against injustice and lying and greed. If people all over the world would do this, it would change the earth. Gary Barnett says, We now live in a world consumed by what's currently being referred to as mass formation psychosis. Now, the phenomenon is not new, but it is very real. And considering today's fake pandemic madness, it has overwhelmed the entire planet at once. Now, this has never happened before on this scale in human history. So the risk of this collective insanity is nothing short of total devastation at the hands of tyrants. I know some people might might think he's being hyperbolic here. I think he's speaking a really plain but really unpleasant truth. You don't have to accept it, but 
for what it's worth. I don't I don't think he's exaggerating on this. Gary Barnett says, well, the term mass formation has taken center stage of late. This is simply a collective mentality where most all think as one in order to gain the approval of the group. To force communal gathering for the purpose of perceived safety, cling to the social norm of the moment, and, of course, vilify anyone who, any who choose not to conform. And this has been properly compared to societal mass hypnosis, but, again, never on such a scale as seen today. It happened in Stalinist Russia, Nazi Germany. It also happens in the build-up to war. False flag events used in the past in this country to stoke great fear have been able to achieve majority approval and collective support for heinous events. This happened due to the pre-planned attack on Pearl Harbor to get the people behind World War II. It happened in the lead-up to the Vietnam War due to the fake Gulf of Tonkin attack. It happened after the staged terror attack of 9-11 used to falsely legitimize aggressive war on the Middle East and in many other instances throughout history. Now he says these events in the past that caused a breakdown of intellect, majority support for the evil state, and succumbing to the whims of the ruling class led to any sort of abuses not only against the victims of war, but also against the domestic populations as well. And while this tyranny levied by the state is always obvious to those who do not accept and always question the mainstream narrative, they are few in number compared to the compliant herd. It's probably something you've picked up on. Now mass psychosis has captured the globe, all due to a purposely fabricated hoax called a coronavirus pandemic. Now, just for the record, I'm going to tell you, I don't think that uh, the virus itself is a hoax. I think that it's legit. I think it was... I think it was a man-made virus, or at least a man-engineered virus, and uh, that it's actually causing some damage. Even so, let's not lose sight of the fact that 98-plus percent of people survive this. The people who are most at risk are the people with serious health risks or already at the end of their lives. So let's try to keep it into, you know, in perspective here. But the idea is... This time, we've got this uh, extreme worldwide mass collectivism brought about due to lies, to global collusion and conspiracy, causing unlimited crowd ignorance. And once the individual sacrificed for the meaningless common good and the brainwashed hordes gather together in complete irresponsible solidarity, right? No single snowflake is responsible for the avalanche. All aspects of sanity disappear in favor of idiotic groupthink. Gary Barnett says once this occurs, totalitarian policies advance in full view of all, but they're mostly ignored by the general mob seeking to remain ignorant of reality. Accepting, understanding, and verifying the truth are all that would be necessary so that individual clarity could be achieved, something universally shunned by most, and that's brutally evident today. He says people tend to see only what they want to see in order to establish and retain social recognition, social acceptance, and comfort in knowing that they are part of a majority and not alone. And he says, regardless of the weakness and the great folly of this type of behavior, it's a part of humanity that has always existed, but has usually been partially and temporarily discarded over time as the prevailing narrative broke down. This has not been the case in this current manufactured virus crisis, as the entire globe has been engulfed in this heavily propagated fraud. At no time in history has every country on earth acted in concert to push a single narrative. 
Even the thought of this happening is still mind-boggling, but he says it happened nonetheless. And this fact alone exposes that the herd mentality of the human animal is not only real, but inherent to the psyche of modern man. In order for something of this magnitude to take place, it's evident that the human population has regressed substantially considering an intellectual growth, responsibility, confidence in self, and a belief in the individual nature of man. They've instead been conditioned and accepted their indoctrination voluntarily, only for reliance on a false sense of comfort and safety of the crowd and dependency on others instead of self. Gary Barnett says, although people are social creatures, what has sustained humanity has been individual effort, tenacity, courage, and a strong driving force to be free. Those traits now only exist with a small minority, and if that minority is eliminated or driven out, the downfall of man will be the result. He says, this is why those of us who know the truth can never stop speaking out and spreading that truth. Speaking truth to power is vitally important and necessary. But it's not enough. Speaking truth to all everywhere, at least to all willing to listen, and doing so continuously in order to wake the hypnotically controlled minds of the masses is imperative. He says what was once considered to be somewhat normal society with a higher percentage of individual thinkers over time became a controlled and indifferent society dependent on foreign substances to calm all their anxieties. Courage, toughness, confidence, and the body's natural ability to fight off life's diseases and mental anxieties disappeared in favor of an escape from reality. And he says this escape was fomented in part by the indoctrination and dumbing down of the general population with the help of the same financial, educational, medical, pharmaceutical, and governing bodies responsible for the creation of this fraudulent pandemic. Germ theory alone allowed for the mass distribution of chemical remedies for almost every ailment and every so-called mental condition. This leading to a society fully dependent on fake psychological diagnoses of fictitious fictitious maladies and the use of non-natural drug treatments. And he says the result has been the creation of a societal shift from one of more prevalent personal responsibility to one of almost total dependence. And this happened incrementally affecting the physical body and also the minds of individuals and resulting in a collective dependency by the masses. So what is being called mass formation, which naturally leads to mass psychosis, has become the norm, not only in this country, but in the rest of the world as well. Is it any wonder that we are in this state of madness and the fast-approaching world totalitarianism? Gary Barnett's advice is never relent, never keep quiet, always speak against the state and its false narratives. Never sit idle in the face of tyranny and never allow apathy to invade your psyche. He says, do not quit writing, making podcasts and videos and spreading all factual information so that others, even those with closed minds, have at least the opportunity to see the light. He says, the truth is our salvation. The more of us exposing the lies, the more of us with courage to speak out, the more of us willing to disobey orders and mandates, the more chance that others may follow suit. Silence is not an option unless servitude is to be guaranteed. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the to the show. <laughs> welcome back to the news. <laughs> I, that was the weirdest Freudian slip ever. It's probably because I've been talking about psychological stuff today. I probably need some time on the on the couch of a, a good, competent psychologist to tell me what it is. Why, where have I disconnected from reality? Why am I so out of step with the masses? And yet, you know what? I don't feel like I am in the wrong here for being out of step with a majority of people. Not because I'm better than them or I'm somehow more special, but simply because something's not right. And I'm, and I'm so grateful for those who've helped to break the spell. Honestly, I think the debt of gratitude that a number of people owe Joe Rogan right now is uh, it's, it's very real. Millions and millions of people have, uh, have looked at Joe Rogan and said, you know, this guy is asking some pretty good questions. And he's actually letting his guest answer and not insisting that they be, you know, held to this rigid three-by-five index card of approved opinion. And that's the kind of stuff it takes. Just somebody with the courage to to seek truth and go wherever the truth leads them. And in this case, uh, look at that. The emperor has no clothes. By the way, if you are uh, one of the people who's relocating to the Intermountain West right now, and there's a lot of people coming here. A friend sent me a chart last night. Holy cow. There are a lot of people coming to what I, I, I presume is seen as an island of freedom. And I don't disagree. There's, there's a lot more freedom to be found here, even though things aren't perfect. This, this isn't a utopian situation, but it's a lot better here than in places that are much more lockdown intensive. So if you're one of those people migrating to the Intermountain West, if you're looking for a home, particularly in the state of Utah, I'd like you to get in touch with the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George. If you're anywhere in the state of Utah, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage can help you. Reach out and call her at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And yes, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Let's talk for a moment about what happened last week. I know there was a lot of interest in the Supreme Court hearing uh, hearing the, the case of vaccine mandates in the workplace that uh, have been proposed by the president. And I don't know how anybody who listened to that, uh, that hearing could still believe credibly that, uh, you know, our judiciary hasn't been compromised by activism. In fact... Just just the few excerpts that I've seen, it's like, though, it's it's fatally compromised. Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute sums it up very nicely in a piece about getting the courts out of science. And he says, this morning, I listened to the oral arguments in the case of the Biden administration's vaccine mandates as enforced by OSHA. And he says it was a demoralizing experience. I heard some crazy things, such as a claim that 750 million Americans just got COVID yesterday and that 100,000 kids with COVID are in the hospital, many on ventilators. Now, the correct number is 3,300 people with positive tests, but not necessarily suffering from COVID. Now, he says, I further heard strong claims that vaccines block disease spread, despite every bit of evidence to the contrary. By the way, I, I did see with my own eyes and hear with my own ears the director of the CDC, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, saying that, uh, yes, we've reached the point where vaccines are not enough to stop the spread. Take that for what it's worth. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, it was my first time hearing oral arguments in the Supreme Court. 
I might have thought that facts on the ground would actually matter to people who are holding the fate of human liberty in their hands. I might have thought that they would be getting their information from somewhere other than their political intuition, mixed with wildly inaccurate claims from bloggers and media pundits. But he says, I was wrong. And that is deeply alarming. Or maybe it's a call, a wake-up call to us all. We have learned today that these people are no smarter than our neighbors. And he's talking about the Supreme Court justices. No more qualified to address complicated questions than our friends. And arguably less informed than the Twitter sphere about basic issues of COVID and public health. Now, the backdrop of the arguments that he was listening to was that 74% of Americans of all ages have had at least one shot. Meanwhile, case numbers are up 500% in many places. And 721,000 new cases have been logged throughout the country. That's obviously a large underestimate because it doesn't count at-home tests which are selling out in stores around the country. Now, the extremely obvious point, the most basic observation one can make about this data, is that vaccinations are not controlling the spread. This has already been granted by the CDC and every other authority. So no matter what people say in retrospect, Jeffrey Tucker says, I seriously doubt that anyone would have predicted a future in which the pandemic highs would be reached following mass vaccination. And it's not only true in the U.S., but also all over the world. However much they help with mitigating severe outcomes of the disease, at least for a time, they have not been successful in stopping the spread of the virus. They will not end the pandemic. And yet, he says, as far as I can understand it, that's the whole point of the vaccine mandate. It's to protect workers from getting COVID. There is zero evidence that this is possible with mass mandates in the workforce. People can and are getting COVID anywhere and everywhere, among which surely means the workplace, too. And the vaccine is not stopping that. What will bring this pandemic to an end will not be the vaccines, but the adaptation of human immune systems, exposed and then developing resilience. Now, apparently there was not one mention of natural immunity during the oral arguments before the court, which is truly astounding. He says, from what I could hear, there was a strangely truncated environment in which no one was willing to say certain obvious truths, almost as if a preset orthodoxy had been defined at the outset. There were certain givens that simply were not questioned, namely that this is a disease without precedent, that the state can stop it, and that vaccines are the best ticket we have, that the unvaccinated have absolutely no good reason to remain that way. Now, he says, to be sure, the oral arguments are what decides a case. The briefs filed for the court are much better on the side of of opposing the mandates, while the briefs for the mandates are filled with untruths that are easily exploded. And so he says, in the end, it's very likely the mandate will be struck down in a 6-3 to three vote. And he says, I'm glad for that. We should be relieved. However, we do need to do some, theory, some serious thinking about what's going on here. We're talking about a mandate that profoundly affects the health and well-being of millions of people. The question of whether someone should take the vaccine is bound up with extremely complex empirical questions, and opinions run in every direction. From those who think it's the greatest gift of modern science to those who think the vaccines themselves are not only dangerous, but also unleashing ever more variants. Now, these are matters of science, and they should be subject to debate with the final choices made by individuals. But he says what absolutely cannot happen in any free, civilized, and stable country is to have such fundamental questions of liberty and bodily autonomy 
adjudicated by a panel of lawyers who have limited curiosity in the science and a lack of knowledge of facts on the ground that are available to anyone who cares and who get their basic facts about a pandemic from TV talk shows and a prevailing media ethos that has no basis in reality. How did we end up here? Jeffrey Tucker says we need the answers to this question. Certain issues should be absolutely off-limits to the courts. Those issues pertain to fundamental questions concerning science and its application to human health. Of all the things that need to be outside the realm of politics and the courts, it's these. The courts lack the competence. Even if the decision goes the right way, there's no real basis for feeling relieved and secure about our future. Now he says, liberty can win this one and lose the next one. It all depends on court appointments. That's not how a social order can operate. We need a system in which foundational issues of health, science, and liberty are outside the scope of the court system. And he says, I wish I knew how to get there. We've been on a very long trajectory in which government exercises ever more control over our lives, inch by inch, for the better part of a century. We've come to the point where this control is a severe threat to our capacity to live free and dignified lives without being subject to the arbitrary whims of experts with power. And the courts have been acquiescent for too acquiescent for too long. He says, if we had a really, really, if we had a functioning court system and a constitution that uh, it followed, the forced closures of March 2020 would have been struck down in hours and ruled out as incompatible with freedom itself. So he says, my highest hope is that the majority opinion here, if it goes the right way, will not be narrow and evasive, picking the mandate apart based on technicalities, but instead it should be sweeping and fundamental. It should say in no uncertain terms that this mandate should never have been issued and that the court should never have to intervene in such matters in the future. Jeffrey Tucker says, freedom requires at least the presumption that businesses and all institutions can operate without acting as proxies for the federal health police pushing injections on workers against their will, and that workers have the right to determine what medicines they will and will not take. In fact, the very existence of this case in the Supreme Court reveals something is fundamentally broken about our presumptions about the relationship between the individual and the state. And he says it must be fixed. We've played too many games and taken too many risks for too long. Yes, there's a link in the show notes. Check it out at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I know, I may sound like this confident uh, guy who just is so sure of everything that I'm stating it all with this surety that I just cannot be challenged. But the truth be told, I've committed to the truth in a number of areas, but I'm also very much open to new truth as it comes along and 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 i i have to find the courage when i find new truth to incorporate it into my thinking and change the way i see the world and i'm encouraging my listeners to do the same not because i have all the answers but because we need to be truth seekers 
And if you are a truth seeker, if you're a wrong thinker, you're willing to question the narrative, you've come to the right place. So I'd invite you to pull up a chair, find courage, find camaraderie, find a sense of your birthright as a free individual. Then I'm going to ask you to take it one step further. And if necessary, step up and fulfill your destiny. Be the person that you were born to be and make the difference that you were born to make in this world. I have great sponsors who make this show possible on a daily basis. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and GovernYourIncome.com. Well, let's dive right in. I've spent a little bit of time talking about the Supreme Court and, you know, the... Uh, Basically, they're, they're hearing the, the arguments why the Biden vaccine mandates in the workplace enforced by OSHA should be struck down. And if you, if you heard some of the questions that were being asked, particularly by Justice uh, Sotomayor, oh boy. You know, any, any illusions we had that, boy, these are the brightest, smartest, most fair, and even-minded people, why the wisdom of Solomon himself would be nothing compared to what the combined wisdom of our Supreme Court is. Yeah, you, you probably would not be able to hold on to that viewpoint for longer than a couple of minutes of, of some of the questions. It's, it's clear. They are susceptible to propaganda. They are susceptible to activism. And it's, it's crazy, but it, it comes down to, you know, so who can we trust? Okay, the Supreme Court, they may not have the best take. What about the science? We can trust the science, right? Actually, let's rethink that. Got a great article here from Mike Roberts explaining what happens when science becomes married to power and, as a result, is granted near infallible status. His article is titled, Why the Bastardization of the Scientific Method is So Dangerous. Mike Roberts says, Over the past half decade, there's been a growing trend signaling a shift in the perceived and accepted role of science. It's not uncommon to see slogans and mottos such as the science is unsettled and believe in science. But he says statements like this present two major problems. First, science is determined to be final and indisputable. Second, it's accompanied by a value or moral judgment. For example, scientific studies indicate that wearing a helmet can reduce head injury by 48%, serious head injury by 60%, traumatic brain injury by 53%, and face injury by 23%. Now, while it takes little effort to align with science on such a matter, he says, I I intend to demonstrate that an application of the first behavior is contradictory to the foundation of science, and the second lies entirely outside its purview. So, to establish common ground, he says, we begin by reviewing the merits and fundamentals of the scientific method. Remember this? First, an observation is made, followed by a question regarding the observation. A hypothesis is then formed that could potentially answer the question. A prediction about future results based on the hypothesis is then tested via experiments. Analysis of the results of the experiments are utilized to confirm or reject the hypothesis. Now, if the results seem to demonstrate that the hypothesis is correct, then confidence begins to build in the predictive power of the hypothesis and its ability to describe the real world. If the results seem to demonstrate that the hypothesis is incorrect, then the scientific method loops back on itself and the hypothesis is challenged, refined, modified, or discarded. 
Now, the process is rigorous, thorough, and exacting. It's also deeply empirical, meaning it relies on information from the real world. It can only extract data from things that have already happened. In its most basic form, this process is what constitutes science as commonly referred to in media and conversation. With common ground established, the first major problem can be addressed. And it is, ironically, anti-science to ever declare that the science is settled. Mike Roberts says there are a few characteristics of the scientific method that substantiate this claim. Since the scientific method is based on empirical data in relation to a hypothesis, it is reliant on the senses and perceived experiences. That means it's wholly dependent on the past. Science cannot properly predict the future. It can only model what has happened and make a reasonable projection about what could happen. Scientific law hangs on statistical probability. In addition... Since man is not omniscient, the future will forever remain unknown. As man continues to explore the physical world, there always exists the possibility that enough data will accumulate to falsify or at least cast into doubt a well-established scientific conclusion. Because of these conditions, statements declaring the science to be settled are altogether unscientific. They reject the core principles and practices of the scientific method and the nature of the human experience. Such conditions expose the ridiculousness of any insinuation that the science is settled. He says, strictly speaking, science is unable to ever be settled. Imagine the carnage if scientists around the world had retired their lab coats and accepted the alleged clinical proof that certain cigarettes were actually not harmful or medically superior to other brands. Unfortunately, continued use of that scientific method has built a compelling counter-arguments that, you know, cigarettes are in fact very detrimental to the body. The second major problem, he says, is that it may have even more perilous implications when thoroughly examined. In the preceding discussion, it's clearly shown that science is only able to approach statistical truth based on empirical evidence. Science is, however, utterly unable to tell us what is right or wrong. There's nothing naturally occurring within the scientific method that empowers it to make value judgments or moral decisions. It cannot tell us what is good, bad, better, or worse. In essence, science is never able to say should or must. To return to our previous example, science may conclude that wearing a helmet prevents head injuries in motorbike accidents, but it's powerless to dictate that motorists should wear helmets. To do so is to make a value judgment that can only be made by individuals. So, wearing a helmet is only prescriptive if the individual motorist values the possibility of preventing a cracked skull more than riding freely in the wind. Knowing the risks and being informed by science, most motorists would likely choose to wear a helmet. But science is unable to tell them that is the choice of highest value, since individuals have different and differing value systems. In regards to science, what is right is dependent on the precise ends desired by individual actors and their values. As Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises stated, there's no use in arguing about the adequacy of ethical precepts. Ultimate ends are chosen by the individual's value, judgments of value. They cannot be determined by scientific inquiry and logical reasoning. So allowing science to make universal value judgments also enables it to define morality. An example of this can be found in the debate surrounding abortion law. Science can tell us when a heartbeat begins, how developed a baby is in the first, second, and third trimester. 
and even the sex of the baby. But again, it's absolutely powerless to tell us whether or not it is moral to abort the baby. Such an evaluation would rest on value judgments and the moral code of the individual. So the issue then with slogans like believe in science is the tendency to conflate science with morality and value. When science is wielded to make laws, it's most often done with a moral code attached. It has been shown that science is not able to do this, so that the only way science can be used to make law is for someone, some real person or person somewhere, to draw a moral conclusion based upon the science. And this personal individual moral conclusion is then applied wholesale upon all that the law will reach. That's the reason why science should never be used as justification in any government action to enforce moral systems. So the further scientists drift from the scientific method to tell people what they should do, the more they undermine science and increase the potential to restrict choice, destroy human liberty, and harm real people. So it should always be remembered that while science can tell us that a phone will carry our voices through the air, it's never going to be able to tell us what should be said. Pretty powerful stuff. This is a great article, again, by Mike Roberts, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education. A great resource for wrong thinkers, and I've got a link in the show notes so you can check it out for yourself. Stay with us. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I'll be happy to send them to your email inbox. Just uh, mash the subscribe button at thebrianheidshow.com. Be more than happy to take care of you. And it's free of charge. And I won't sell your email to any third party who wants to sell you widgets or anything else. So it's, it's something you can do with confidence. Well, I understand there are a lot of people right now who are sincerely afraid of an unseen enemy that's being blamed for turning our world upside down. And while it's, it's I guess, understandable, politicians and policymakers would blame the virus. Well, you know, the virus has destroyed our economy. It has, you know, it has caused, you know, a great surge in mental health concerns and so forth. But I feel like there's something less than honest taking place when, when it's all being blamed on the virus. For the record, I believe that there is a virus out there, and yes, I believe it can be dangerous to some people. However, I also believe the survivability rate is right up there around 99% for most people, so I'm not uh, ready to give up living as a free individual because of the the risks. I've weighed the risks and thought, okay, for me, this is how it's going to be. But unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are just terrified of this. And they don't realize it's the policymakers that have turned their world upside down. Those policymakers are ordering them about, do this, wear that, get this, and jab this in your arm. And you know, they, they just believe that uh, those, those policymakers couldn't possibly bear responsibility for all the decisions that have harmed so many people and continue to harm so many people. It's the fear 
that makes this possible. And Rick McDowell says, fear is the mind killer. People under its influence are very likely to miss the fact that their fear is being used to control them. He starts with a quote from Dune. Frank Herbert in Dune, fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death. And Rick McDowell says, indeed, fear is the more dangerous virus infecting us. Witness the fearfulness engulfing Americans. Fear of the virus. Fear of being called a racist. Fear of being canceled. Fear of the other. Fear of defending beliefs. Fear of our history. Fear of not being woke. Fear of even saying the truth. Fear works. The face of America has taken on a pallor. Before the specter of 2021 descended, we were proud to identify as the land of the free and the home of the brave. But now, after a year of cautious, quiet desperation, precipitated by a shower of those fears, we have become the silence of the lambs. Our fearful leader bangs his drum of fear incessantly, hammering a dent into our sense of free ill. I don't know if that's a typo, but that's a great uh, portmanteau. Anyway, nine days before Christmas, the president told us, I want to send a direct message to the American people. We are looking at a winter of severe illness and death for the unvaccinated, for themselves, their families, and the hospitals they'll soon overwhelm. Prepare for your winter of death, he advises. Never in American history has a president openly told Americans to be afraid. Death is coming for you. In fact, quite the opposite is the norm. FDR, in his first inaugural address, says, We have nothing to fear but fear itself. The threat then was the Great Depression. Now we have this whole litany of newly invented irrational fears to overcome, and perhaps not the national stomach of that previous era to face them down. What's worse than being called a racist? Being called a coward. What's more worrisome than the bug is President Biden's insistence that the nation in its entirety and without exception join with him in fear or else suffer severe penalty at his hand. He says aloud that our required compliance outweighs freedom. It's not about freedom or your personal choice, he said hollowly to the nation on September 8th of 2020. On the contrary, Mr. President, it is most certainly exactly about freedom. He uses the power of fiat to enforce his demand that all obey his dictates. But there was and is no public mandate for mandates. The consent of the governed is irrelevant to Joe Biden. He rationalizes that he is potentially protecting the lives of a fraction of a percent through the massive collateral damage of destroying tens of millions of livelihoods and the American way of life, and of course causing unknown damage to the psyche of a generation of children. Despair and skyrocketing suicides are acceptable losses to the administration so long as the COVID fear persists. He cares so much for you, he will even have you fired for not getting the requisite injections. No exceptions. Not even Navy SEALs. Not even those brave souls who care for the infected. His irrational insistence that every person become fully vaccinated, which we've learned is itself an organic living term, certainly raises suspicion that there is some ulterior motive to this red line position, such as laying the foundation for the enforcement of an unquestioning acceptance of authority. Reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away, wrote Philip K. Dick, author of The Man in the High Castle. But the reality is that our beliefs are what make us a people and a nation. 
and our reality changes before us as we stop believing in the humanities of our nation, our history, culture, philosophy, society. These are the beliefs that distinguish America from all other nations, present and past. Those who believe they're worth preserving cannot remain mute. A significant majority of Americans remain, for now, quietly dispassionate observers to a national passive acceptance of suddenly usurped authority over their lives and livelihoods. Meekly, we obediently follow the dictates from on high, no matter how ill-founded, misjudged, and irrational. They are the experts, after all. They are the authorities. Any questions? We watch our history being canceled as if it was no greater disappointment than merely sharing the same fate as a favored TV show biting the dust. Eerily, we are assured by the media that this is for the public good. They tell us, feel shame, not pride in your country and its history. Now, such a demented view is the strongest reason to teach and embrace rather than abandon both American history and, for comparative purposes, world history. Has anyone seen the wisdom around here lately? It seems to have gone missing. Next, we face the recently implanted social fears of group cancellation through perceptions of insufficient compassion directed to the defeatist cohorts. Their tactic to resolve their problems of self-esteem is to make them your problems. By not curing them, they claim you are oppressing them. We're told to discard the principles of liberty and rugged individualism because the idea of competing and being self-reliant should no longer be considered virtues that give sharp, muscular definition to what it is to be American. Honor, dignity, responsibility, forbearance, these we are informed by our enlightened elite are vestiges of some oppressive patriarchy. They want us mushier. And the radical left finds these qualities to be affronts to the weak. Those content to be provided a life of assured banality in which a national authority usurps all the life choices that are otherwise bestowed upon a living so- on a soul living a life of liberty in America. They tell us the bar is too high for some, so we must lower our standards for all, stoop so others need not reach. The left's dream of equity is this, the day when we all live in shared misery in a land not of opportunity but of enforced mediocrity, obediently showing up to a meaningless guaranteed government job with corresponding minimal expectations of performance or advancement. Living in government housing, zoned to ensure conformity with approved diversity guidelines, and monitored by constant surveillance for compliance. That's the dream. This general malaise that's descended upon the spirit of America is felt as a loss of, loss of confidence, deliberately and purposely imposed by internal forces. Domestic forces whose openly expressed intent is to fundamentally change the nature of the United States and a psychological force, a creeping unease in the struggle of mindful Americans of how to process the assault we feel daily on American values. Fear can play no part for the citizenry of a free United States, but fear would be key to the control function of any replacement overseers. We must, or the least afraid of among us, must end the fear by showing courage and thereby spreading courage further. We must let there be no doubt about our resolve to continue a free way of life in America by speaking with resolve with friends to bolster them and to opposing views to challenge their motives in the land of the free. We need leaders stepping up. So says Rick McDowell. I think he's right. Check out the link to his article in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to send a shout out to uh, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, one of my great sponsors. Somebody that I hope you will do business with if you are in the neighborhood, even if you aren't. St. George is absolutely gorgeous this time of year. Much nicer than wherever you happen to be. Unless, of course, you're listening in Hawaii or someplace like that, in which case you probably have a pretty close contest on your hands. Nonetheless, something I wanted to pass on is they are having a huge handy quilter event this month. And if you know someone who is into quilting, you should probably put a bug in their ear and tell them, hey, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George has this huge event going on. They'd like to get more people signed up to, to come attend. Also, they have the best prices of the year during this month on their handy quilter machines and accessories. Now, all the machines are on season-end pricing. They even have some of the hard-to-find machines available for in-store purchases. This includes Brother, Baby Lock, and Genome. And get this, every machine comes with a free class on how to use the machine. They never expire. In fact, you can take those machine classes again if you forget or if you just want to refresh your course. Talk about standing behind their product. Go to SewingQuiltingCenter.com. You could also type in SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. Either one will take you there. And tell them thank you for being sponsors of this program. You know, what happened on January 6th of 2021 is currently being used to weaponize the full weight of the federal government against anyone who refuses to go along with the official narrative. You've got a political class that is right on the verge of losing control and losing their grasp on power. They're very scared. And so they are trying to weaponize as much of the government as possible against anyone who questions what they say. And and I say this with the understanding, you don't have to agree with the people who stepped over the line on January 6th. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to even support Trump to recognize that there are a lot of unanswered questions in regard to what actually happened on that day. Julie Kelly, who writes for AmericanGreatness.com, has, uh, she's become a really good go-to source on January 6th, and particularly things that uh, the Department of Justice and the FBI are are reticent to answer. I have an article here of 12 questions the Justice Department and the FBI need to answer about January 6th. Because rank-and-file Republicans are fed up with the GOP leadership, and they're starting to see the Capitol protest as more of an inside job than some kind of spontaneous uprising much less a planned insurrection. Now, there's a good chance, Julie Kelly has in her article, uh, there's a good chance Republicans can take control of both houses of Congress in the 2022 midterm elections. There's an even better chance they're going to wimp out and betray their supporters again. So this open letter is addressed to one especially disappointing group. Dear Senate Judiciary Committee Republicans, Happy New Year. Hope you're rested and ready for the big political fights ahead in 2022. Republicans across the country are counting on you to stand tough against the Biden regime and your Democratic counterparts in advance of a potentially power-shifting election this November. Just kidding. Alas, informed Republicans know that even with all the uncertainties in the world, we can be certain that the Republican members of the Senate Judiciary Committee will always disappoint us. Even when you controlled an important committee for four years under a Republican president, you failed to fulfill one empty promise after another. 
Remember, remember all those promises to get to the bottom of Russia Gate, the biggest political scandal and abuse of government power in history? Well, until January 6th? Remember how you let Senator Dianne Feinstein and Democratic activists hijack the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, which led to a humiliating and divisive showdown between the Supreme Court nominee and his half-baked accuser? Oh, and remember the lengthy investigative report you issued a few months later that accused people of lying to Congress and referred them to the Justice Department, which you reportedly oversee on criminal charges, but nothing ever happened? Good times. Julie Kelly also goes on to say, during the first year of the Biden administration, you made nary a peep as Biden filled his cabinet with Obama loyalists and left-wing radicals. She says, my very favorite moment was when every member of the committee voted to advance the nomination of Lisa Monaco, Barack Obama's hyperpartisan Homeland Security Advisor, Russiagate architect, and former chief of staff, to FBI Director Robert Mueller to serve as Deputy Attorney General. She is what Andrew Weissman was to Mueller when he was special counsel, the vengeful Republican-hating prosecutor calling the shots behind the grandfatherly veneer of Attorney General Merrick Garland. But don't feel bad. Every Republican senator except two voted to confirm Monaco last April. Julie Kelly says, after, as I wrote after her confirmation, rather than act as any sort of barrier to protect America from the arsonist-in-chief hell-bent on burning down every tradition, constitutional guardrail, and the notion of common decency owed to fellow Americans, Senate Republicans are handing Joe Biden the matches. Now, Senator Rand Paul and Ted Cruz were the only Republicans to vote against Monaco. But Cruz just stepped in a mound of political guano this week when he described the four-hour disturbance at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th as a violent terrorist attack. That comment was not only music to Monaco's ears, but it pleased every January 6th propagandist on the left, from Joe Biden and FBI Director Christopher Wray, who also designated the protest an act of domestic terror, right down to the, low, to the average low-IQ CNN viewer. Now, she sets the stage of how, you know, there's this huge inquiry going into, you know, January 6th. Do we want to know what really happened? Well, she says, look, here, Justice Department and FBI, she goes, I would like to suggest you immediately confront these questions that need to be asked about January 6th. And I want you to hear these questions. Number one, why does the Justice Department consider 14,000 hours of surveillance video captured on January 6th by taxpayer-funded security cameras as highly sensitive government material? In fact, she asked, why are even 30-second clips used in court proceedings under protective orders with strict rules about how defendants and their attorneys can view the evidence against them? Second question, what's the status of the FBI's lengthy investigation into the alleged pipe bomber? And why, despite using every intrusive tool, including geofence warrants, to collect information on Capitol protesters, has the FBI not yet identified a suspect? Question three, is Ray Epps an FBI asset? If not, why has he not been charged, despite clearly engaging in the same behavior that resulted in felony criminal charges against other January 6th participants? Number four, Did the FBI run informants into alleged militia groups such as the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers before January 6th? Can you confirm the New York Times reporting from September that disclosed at least two FBI informants were with the Proud Boys when they breached the first exterior barrier right before 1 p.m. on January 6th? 
Number five, why is Stuart Rhodes, the founder of Oath Keepers and person one in every indictment for the 20 defendant conspiracy case against Oath Keepers, still not charged with any crime, even though he clearly organized the alleged conspiracy and was on Capitol grounds on January 6th? Number six, explain why the Justice Department, notwithstanding testimony to the contrary, had elite FBI forces stationed at Quantico the weekend before January 6th. Hundreds of FBI agents were deployed to the area around the Capitol that morning. Some entered the building with the first set of protesters who breached the actual building. Is this not a contradiction of what F- Justice Department and FBI officials recently or previously testified under oath? Number seven, how many pre-trial detention orders has the Justice Department sought against January 6th defendants? How many remain behind bars right now? How many face nonviolent charges and have no criminal record? How can the Justice Department continue to ask for delays in trial dates for detained defendants? Is this not a clear violation of the Sixth Amendment? Number eight, how many detainees have been held in solitary confinement conditions in the D.C. jail specifically used to house January 6th defendants? Number nine, does any police officer face possible charges for excessive unlawful force, including the two D.C. Metro officers who beat, punched, and maced Victoria White inside the Lower West Terrace Tunnel January 6th? Number ten, is there a formal investigation into the death of Rosalind Boyland outside that tunnel on January 6th? Video and eyewitness accounts suggest she did not die of an accidental drug overdose, but actually may have been the victim of police misconduct. Number 11, how many raids has the FBI conducted to arrest January 6th defendants? And does this include Americans only charged with misdemeanors? And number 12, how much taxpayer money has the Department of Justice spent so far in what Merrick Garland called the agency's largest investigation in history? You get the drift. And she says, I, I, Republican rank and file are fed up with feckless GOP leadership. They're starting to see the Capitol protest as more of an inside job than a spontaneous uprising incited by Donald Trump. Now, you won't likely get answers from these officials, but you can make a very public case that one year later, the official narrative about January 6th looks quite dissimilar from the facts at hand. Again, this is Julie Kelly writing for AmericanGreatness.com or AmGreatness.com. I've got a link in the show notes. I don't know if she's on target here, but I think she is asking the right questions. That's a great place to start. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Man, so much good material today. I mean, on the one hand, I want to rejoice because I had some very successful data mining over the weekend and looking for fun, well, not fun, but um, solid, relevant things to share with you today. Yeah, we'll get around to some fun stuff at some point. I do have something here that's a little bit of a lighter nature, and and this is something that I hope is on your mind. Look, if you're serious about changing minds rather than just establishing your dominance over others, then you probably already know that persuasion requires respect for the other person. If you just want to beat them into submission, you know, you just want to give them the old Mark Levin shout down, 
Well, that's that's one way to go about it. But if you really want to change the minds of those with whom you disagree, you're going to have to take a, a gentler approach. Annie Holmquist actually has a great column about some time-tested advice from Ben Franklin on exactly this, how to change the minds of those with whom you disagree. She writes, ah, it's January of another year, and that means it's also time for fresh starts and new goals. She says, one of my goals this year is to finally read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. And she says, although I've perused large portions of it in the past, reading it straight through has been on my to-do list for some time, and now that I've started, my copy is already starting to fill up with underlining and penciled notes in the margin. By the way, can I just explain? That is how you know a person is serious in their study. That's how you know who is a good reader versus those who aren't. Because when they're, when they're doing nota- notations and annotations of, of uh, what they're reading, asking questions, underlining certain passages, I know our mothers told us, don't ever write in books. You know, and if it's a library book, I would say probably don't. But if it's one that you own, this is the smartest thing you can ever do. Because when you go back and you revisit that book, which you hopefully will do with classics over time, you learn how much your own thinking has evolved, how much your own insights have developed based on the kinds of questions you made or the observations you saw, the notes that you wrote. So I, I, I take Annie Holmquist seriously because I believe she's a serious truth seeker. How do I know? Because she writes in her books. Nonetheless, hitting page 13, she says, I came across a nugget of wisdom perfect for our times in which many strong and polarizing opinions flow freely. Franklin is discussing his journey in learning how to properly persuade and inform others while in conversation, rather than to simply debate and argue with them. Now, Annie Holmquist says, having been on both the giving and receiving end of such argumentative conversations in the last year, as I'm sure many of you have, She says, I found Franklin's remarks a gentle reminder that if we are to win the world to our way of thinking, we must practice effective methods of persuasion. I wish well-meaning, sensible men would not lessen their power of doing good by a positive, assuming manner, Franklin begins, showing that our influence on others is reduced by an attitude of overconfidence. Now, Franklin says this type of approach seldom fails to disgust, tends to create opposition, and to defeat every one of those purposes for which speech was given to us, to wit, giving or receiving information or pleasure. So Annie Holmquist says to test the truth of this statement, one need only look to the news media, which have made a habit of condescendingly telling the American public what to do. Their trustworthiness in the eyes of Americans dropped to the second lowest on record in 2021, a Gallup poll showed. If all we're interested in is running our mouths and showing our own importance, not in persuading others to adopt our ideas, well, then we should follow in the media's steps. For, as Franklin says, a positive and dogmatical manner in advancing your sentiments may provoke contradiction and prevent a candid attention. Annie Holmquist says those who never pause to hear and consider the other side are also unlikely to convince their opponents. Franklin writes, if you wish information and improvement from the knowledge of others, and yet at the same time express yourself as firmly fixed in your present opinions, modest, sensible men who do not love disputation will probably leave you undisturbed in the possession of your error. 
and by such a manner you can hope you can seldom hope to recommend yourself in pleasing your hearers or to persuade those whose concurrence you desire. End quote. So assume the best of your listeners, Franklin says, acting not as though you're schooling them for their own good, but calmly suggesting facts and insights as though they're not a big deal. Franklin concludes his reflection on persuasion by quoting Alexander Pope. Men should be taught as if you taught them not, and things unknown and proposed as things forgot. To speak, though sure, with seeming diffidence. Annie Holmquist says, look, this past year has been full of opportunities to debate, and those debates will likely only continue. So whether you want to convince others to take the vaccine or to avoid it, or that Trump won, or that he's an absolute moron, or that you're correct about any number of other polemical positions, why not take a page out of Franklin's book? If your mission is only to prove your own self-importance and knowledge, well, then by all means, enter every discussion with an argumentative mindset and pound your views into the heads of your listeners. But if your mission is to persuade and to present the truth in hopes that your hearers will take heed, then try Franklin's suggestions. In the end, such winsomeness as he advises may just change the world, or at least your corner of it. You know, I I love Annie Holmquist's take on just about everything I've read that she's written. She is the editor of uh, intellectualtakeout.org, and, and it's always good to spend some time there. I have it listed as one of my resources for wrong thinkers on my website. And I've had to learn some of these lessons along the way. And there, there are those of you within the sound of my voice who have been longtime listeners. I mean, I've, I've been doing my show for a long, long time. And, and uh, you know, my red meat throwing phase, it was a pretty exciting phase. And I'll admit, I was quite intoxicated on the, uh, you know, the the growth of my listening audience and it just uh, it was it was like being a minor celebrity and and i and i kind of have to chuckle somebody had posted a poll on facebook over the weekend and it was like who is the most famous person you've ever spoken to and i was really i was really flattered that somebody had put brian hyde i'm like wow that's that's really cool although the fame thing yeah some people may know me most people don't and, and as far as fame and fortune go, I think I've made it pretty clear. I stopped caring about those some time ago. And so far, my plan to remain, you know, uh, unknown and, and poor, why, it's, it's working just swimmingly. But, no, my, my point is simply this. I became much more focused on impact. I want, to, I want to be known for the kind of impact that I had on the people around me. And I don't care how big that audience is. I hope it. I hope that I'm able to impact, at least positively impact, as many people as possible. But in order to do that, you've got to be willing to, to persuade rather than to just, you know, stand up and tell everybody, okay, here's how the chow, cow chewed the cabbage and you better fall in line or you're stupid. And persuading people is is definitely something that requires a little more humility. It requires patience, and if, if I have learned anything over the last few years, it requires the willingness to disagree without becoming disagreeable or antagonistic towards people. There are times when I've had people really call me out. I know, you're surprised, right? Really, Brian? Yep. Um, people, people have either emailed me or called me up and told me, you know, this is what I think of you, and you know, you're no better than Phil Donahue or whatever. And it's like, wow, man, they're, they're pulling out the big guns. 
And there's a time when I would have responded with, you know, a much more antagonistic, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to put you in your place just because. (laughs) But ever since I was exposed to uh, Paul Rosenberg and his idea of how to speak to the brainwashed, which is simply this, lose the need to win. Speak the truth with love. Let people come to their own conclusions at their own speed. I've taken a much gentler approach. And when someone has, has gone on the attack against me, Typically, I'll just, you know, say, well, it looks like we don't agree on that. And and don't try to put them in their place. And I've lost track. I've lost count of how many times those individuals have reached out to me at a later point in time and said, you know what? I've had some time to look at this a little bit more closely, and I've come to realize I misjudged you on this. Now, that doesn't always mean that they were going to agree with me, and it's not important whether they do. The important thing is, by taking that gentler approach, by administering 500 uh, milligrams of humility to myself before reacting in anger, I've left the door open for someone to, to look at the things, the facts and look at the truth on their own terms and then to come to that knowledge on their own rather than me forcing them. See that? See that? And rubbing their noses in it. So if you're new to the game as a truth speaker... I'm offering this advice unsolicited just because I want you to be effective in having impact on the people around you as well. So learn from my mistakes. Hopefully this will give you a little shortcut and save you some time and trial and error like I've had to learn from. Thanks again for listening. This is The Brian Hyde Show.